Welcome to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're looking for the GC On Demand, then you found the freshly rebranded Disco Posse Podcast. Go to discopossepodcast.com for details. to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. We've had a really, really great array of, of guests here on the GC On Demand, and this is our our first opportunity to have uh, a panel uh, in front of us here. So we've got a couple of great guests, and we're going to talk about some some stuff that's, you know, it drips off the tongues of every CIO and, and every Information Week magazine. We're going to talk a little about DevOps today. And uh, with us, I've got uh, uh, Andy Grabner and uh, Brett Hoffer, uh, who are coming at us. And uh, so, guys, if you want to introduce yourselves... Uh, tell us where we can find you online, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of get into things. Yeah, hi Eric, and hi audience. Uh, I don't see you obviously, but hopefully you can hear us. Uh, I'm Andy Grabner. You can find me on Twitter with the handle Grabner Andy, but Andy with an I. Uh, y I. Uh, it is um, coming from Austria, so German is uh, my name, my native language. So actually, my name is Andreas, and the short version of Andreas is also Andy, but with an I. So Grabner Andy with an I. I've been working in performance for, let's say, 15, 16 years, uh, meaning application performance, helping people break apps on the load and trying to figure out why they break, where the scalability issues are. And more recently, as you said, Eric, uh, everybody's talking about DevOps and continuous delivery. And um, I've been helping a lot of people trying to figure out how to not only build good apps that are performing well and scaling well, but how to do this in a more rapid way, which I believe is one of the key pillars of of the DevOps movement, being able to deliver software faster with better quality. And I think that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of community speaking at meetups, user groups, and conferences. Like So just like you, giving back to the community. And uh, yeah, I think that's more than enough about me. Brett. Hi, everybody. This is Brett Hofer. I'm a global DevOps practice manager for Dynatrace. And uh, I'm actually coming from uh, out of the Tampa Bay area. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and also on Twitter, uh, although I just recently started tweeting. Um, <laughs> something uh, I, I was not pr- doing much before, but it uh, seems like the rest of my colleagues do that a lot. Um, <clears throat> welcome to 2016. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, welcome aboard. <laughs> I just don't have too many of those that I like to just spew out those, uh, those thoughts all the time. But... Uh, I do that most of the day. Um, I, I actually come from about a 20-year-plus development background as well as application management. Uh, dealt with projects, was app manager on projects that were over $80 million. Um, const- so I have a, I'm a developer at heart, but uh, uh, also a, a solution architect at heart. Um, so doing a lot with the DevOps and a lot of the community, uh, writing articles and, and so on. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to join, join the group today in the conversation. 
That's awesome. You know, you guys both touched on the the classic thing of community. You know, what's what really helps us is is great contributors like yourselves that that go back and you know and share those experiences online. You know, we're glad to see. You. I'm glad to see you on back. Uh, you know, spread, branching out to Twitter, <laughs> Brett, because I find that's a huge way to kind of reach out with folks. Uh, you know, because internally in our communities we get some neat uh, conversations going. But it's funny how. Twitter and it can become a good sort of, you know, global outreach, whether good or bad, it's, it's a one way to get a message out. Uh, you know, you both come back from, from interesting sort of storied histories, you know, through development and, and this is what's fun. You know, we're going to have a bit of a longer form chat today because we've got, you know, lots to cover and, and I'll kind of hit you first with the, the weirdest question, you know, what is DevOps? That's that's what everybody wants to know. You know, it, how would you define what what DevOps is in in the way that people are trying to embrace it today? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, it's a tough question, and I guess the best answer is it depends on who you are, who you ask. My definition that I recently used last year is DevOps is what I used to do when I was a single one man startup, and I was both developer, I was a tester. And I was also responsible for operations. And basically, the cool thing with this is I was kind of schizophrenic, obviously, because I played, I had to wear all the different hats. But uh, I had no communication boundaries because it was easy to talk to myself, to convince myself that this is a great feature, implement it, test it, and run it. And in case something is wrong, I just knew I had to fix it. And I think that's what DevOps is all about: is about trying to scale what works well in a small startup into large enterprises and in obviously removing all the boundaries but I think what the key thing is it's a cultural change meaning even, even if I might just be one of hundreds of developers I am equally responsible and accountable for the stuff that I'm doing as the guy that had the initial idea as the guy that is operating it I think this is also the we, we are a team right we build something that makes our company hopefully more successful than it is right now. And if I build something, I have a lot of responsibility. I should also have a little more power uh, and flexibility, and uh, but also responsibility. So my definition is DevOps tries to scale what works well in a small startup in, in larger settings and larger enterprises. That's my initial definition. And it is more a cultural change and empowering people than it is uh, implementing it. And I'm talking, I'm naming implementing because you mentioned Twitter last weekend. I got a tweet from HP, uh, one of the marketing teams. They try to get out uh, a link to one of their latest white papers. And the title was Three Steps to Implement DevOps. Oh, God. And for me, that's obviously uh, not really the good thing. But what's interesting, the paper was actually pretty good. The title was just for me not, not, not what I associate with DevOps because you don't implement DevOps. That's right. The, the paper, I want to give some credit, credit to them, so it was good. But the main point is obviously, as we all know, DevOps is more about cultural change and empowering people to build better software and to get ideas faster to the, to the paying customer, end user, whatever it is. We just need to create like a BuzzFeed article, 26 ways that DevOps works better for you. <laughs> so, so, Brett, what, what's your view? You know, do you have any... any added stuff you kind of want to, to, to latch on to that definition? Sure. I mean, I think there's kind of that general consensus that it is a cultural change. Uh, I like to use uh, some of the metaphors of like uh, 
and, and a little bit like Andy had said I, while I was by himself, I kind of look at it as old school. I mean, I actually was in doing, uh, I did some game design uh, and development work uh, in a past life, and it's it's really the old school trust. Everybody trusts each other, <clears throat> and it's really kind of returning to that that mode where you know we've gone into separating everybody's in their own sandboxes. The testers are in their sandboxes. The ops are in their sandboxes. The dev is. And it's like creating one big sandbox, allowing everybody to play in the same sandbox and trusting that everybody wants to, to do the right thing. Um, DevOps is a lot about innovation. It's a cultural change that allows us to accept failure. Uh, I think it's really important that a DevOps culture changes the mindset that everybody right now, I think, is in a fear of making a change and making it fail. And then so, you know, innovation is stifled. So it's getting back to the days where, like, hey, listen, we want you to innovate. We trust our engineers. We trust people's ideas. So that's a very big cultural thing. Uh, DevOps is about transparency. Uh, there should be a lot of transparency in everything that's going on at every stage. It's not just throwing things over the wall, but everybody's involved helping everybody else. <clears throat> so there's a lot of trust in a DevOps culture. Uh, and I also think that DevOps is a lot about working harder, or working smarter, not harder. Uh, it's, it's creating very, very innovative ways um, to, to solve problems through automation. Um, so the whole culture is about creating a really smart uh, way to develop and deliver and deploy software. I love it. And you know you you hit on the stuff that we often see and and I always you know point back and we all know you know of course the sort of Gene Kim you know stuff he talks about it, the the need for it to be a very high trust. Uh, in order to get success through this stuff, and and the other thing is is failure. You know, I think what was the the classic you know thing we always point back to. Everybody says it was IBM talked about you know fail fail fast or, or fail early, whatever the 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 original misattributed quote is. But you know, people failure is a different thing. Like so, Brett, tell me about what what failure means in this context. <clears throat> Well, failure means uh, specifically uh, trying out new ideas, innovating new things that you, you're not sure will actually work, um, and then deploying them, uh, but you know, having the safeguards in place and everybody on the team understanding that, you know, hey, we're trying a new thing. We could be using you know, all different new technologies or complexities, but it could be really amazing for, uh, as, as a feature or a function for the end users and if it fails or something was forgotten, uh, you know, the whole team's not like pointing fingers and, and, you know, getting on top of somebody that could lose their job or whatever. It's failure is that that function could fall flat on its face and everybody's like, hey, that's a great try. But, you know, you can also contain those failures and so they can mitigate how many people it affects. Um, so failure is... You know, the, the, the fact that you expect things to happen, but you put enough safeguards in place to react and, and respond quickly. Nice. And uh, Andy, maybe you want to talk a bit about you know, your view on, you know, that iterative approach versus the more like 1.0 to 2.0. You know, we used to chuckle at open source projects because they're, they're, always, they're always at 0.99 and then when they version up, it's 0.99.9. Like no one's ever willing to go to this 1.0 because they want to continuously iterate and it's hard for us to call it GA or general availability or official release. But you know, in your experience, how do you, do you find that that small iterative approach is, 
gets more success, even though its visibility may look a little odd to some people? Well, I guess that's the cornerstone of continuous delivery, and I think if if you, are, I'm sure you've seen the same numbers. Like when a couple of years ago, when when Amazon set, went on stage at Velocity, and there was a saying, "We are deploying every 11.6 seconds." Everybody was like, "What are they doing?" <laughs> and basically, what 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 people what people didn't realize or what they thought in the beginning is they're releasing a new version every 11.6 seconds, but no, that's not what it is. It is small deployment changes, right? And I think that's the key. So we are moving away from big bang releases that we push out there every year, twice a year, to these small changes, and change can mean a little feature that don't even deserves a version number, uh, but it's a feature out there. No, who cares about a, uh, about a version number? They care about can I use the service, yes or no? So it's about these small changes, and I, I think this is part of making continuous delivery and DevOps really work well, is if you break down your software into the smallest piece possible, and the smallest pieces, and then trying to, as Brad said, automate the whole process to getting these ideas and changes faster through the pipeline. So yes, I, um, I think we're all moving away from big bang releases to smaller iterative releases, and if we give it a version number, or if you give it some other name and just say this is spring release or this is feature version XYZ, who cares? So I think we're moving away from these big numbers. I, I, like I, it. I don't see the benefit anymore. Yeah. And I remember you know, years ago now, more than I'd like to admit, you know, first meeting a fellow who came into my organization and he was he came with this idea of test-driven development. And it was it was odd from the approach that had been taken by the internal development team, because they thought, well, geez, you know, our they're their tests at that time were like user scripts where you physically go through this page of to-do items and if it wasn't on the page, it didn't get tested and it only got tested when it went to full QA and then you signed off on it, went to production, then you found all the real problems underneath it. You know, how how did test-driven development and the idea of, you know, iterative approaches kind of come together? And, you know, maybe you both want to talk about your evolution as developers and 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 how that came into to being more of, of how you worked. Um, well, I would say, otherwise you want okay. So I would say, um, I think we don't need to convince anybody anymore what agile is and that there's benefits. And I think by by now, I think test-driven development, at least I would say, in the majority of companies that I've been working with, is basically there's no question anymore. We do test-driven development. People see the benefits of uh, not only writing code, but being able to test it in an automated way um, in, in the CI. So that's why I think test-driven development is something that is that is a defect to standard. I don't have to I don't have to argue a lot anymore about test-driven development. And especially if there's so many stories out there about I mean success stories of company that companies that moved towards that approach and I always reference uh, a great uh, presentation blog post but also a presentation from Adam Auerbach he is from Capital One, and they basically moved from Waterfall to Agile, including test-driven development. And, and he gave this presentation, I think, several times at Velocity and other DevOps, DevOps days and conferences. But he was basically one out of eight test team leads three years ago. Three years later, he's the only one left in a tester role or in a mentor role. Why? Because they basically merged the tester uh, role into the Agile teams, and they're now doing test-driven development, so 
the testers that did manual testing before or anything around testing are now doing automation within these teams. But the key is about automation and it's basically key is doing it with the engineering team when they develop features and that's basically test-driven development, right? So, and, and listening to stories from Adam and others, I think just over the years convinced everybody that this is just the way we develop software, right? Nobody's, nobody should put out any, nobody should start writing any code without first defining what should the code do when you define this with the tests. That's my, my opinion on it. Brett, what do you think in, in, in your, you know, your view and your exposure to, to customers as they've, as they've gone through this evolution towards just becoming, you know, more, it's standardized that we've, we've gone to TDD and Agile, you know, how did you find the transition and, you know, do you, do you find anybody who's still not quite convinced yet? I don't know about convinced, but I still see plenty of the, the manual test process. I think it's also the reason for the DevOps. I mean, Honestly, uh, for, for a lot of us that have been in the enterprise as app managers, <clears throat> um, there is probably one of the biggest pain points for any kind of app deployment for any app uh, manager, and that is to say you want a little change to go out to the production site, and all you hear is your regression testers say they need to test the world when you know it's only affecting a very small piece of the entire application. <clears throat> so it, it actually... Uh, the idea of where, where we're going with DevOps and, and is to really address that pain point, right? I mean, I don't need, you know, 30 testers who only do manual testing following these scripts um, saying that I need to test the world when I'm going to update a small button that, you know, effectively they say could affect the world. Whereas if you have in a DevOps culture, these testers are really engineers. Not only can they manually test, but they can actually engineer tests. Um, and they can work with the development engineers to perform uh, a, a really strategic uh, process with test data and their test uh, between unit testing and functional testing, performance testing, come up with a great strategy each time those sprints and features are being released. Um, that's really to start getting rid of that pain of, of that I have to make a change and I need it to get out there. I still want the quality to be where it is. But I don't want uh, you know it, uh, a SEV one to hang around for four and a half hours because somebody wants to run all these manual tests. You have a very optimized pipeline. I think there's a lot of people I see who realize that and want that, but it's still I see it as that whole automation out in the field is still a, a, a trending. You know, people have gotten through those functional tests, but people are still very very light on the unit testing. So. Um, it depends on where the testing maturity happens. Um, I don't think it's a matter of convincing. It's just a matter of doing and executing. Yeah, I think the unit testing piece is a lot of, you know, fresh developers, you know, luckily they're kind of getting raised into it. I mean, it's being taught in colleges and universities today, you know, as part of the process. But, you know, folks that have kind of happened upon development, you know, there's a lot of team members that they don't necessarily learn to to make testing a part of the regimen and yeah, unit tests also, you know, often become the like, oh, you know, it's, it's extra time when they can kind of hammer out features. What they don't realize is the negative effects. They aren't saving time, right? Like, I mean, Andy, you've probably got tons of stories, you know, people that said, oh, you know, I'll write the test later. And, you know, what's the end result? Like what happens when we choose speed, apparent speed over, you know, real true velocity of getting code out there effectively. 
Yeah, I mean the, the ultimate result is that we end up with, with code that eventually fails and we could have stopped that bad code change automatically, as Brad said, automatically early on by just having a unit test that is not only testing functionality, and I think this is a big point where, where Brad and I are currently trying to educate developers and testers. A unit test, yes, on its on its simple definition is doing functional testing, but what we are trying to educate people look at the unit test and also look at what the code is actually doing. So if you're testing a feature um, that is accessing a data store, look at the number of access points you have to the data store. So how often do you call into the REST API to query some data? How, many, how much data do you transfer? Um, how many CPU cycles do you need? What's happening there? So the thing is, if we capture all these metrics, and you know DevOps and continuous delivery is all about metrics, if you capture all of these metrics, with your unit tests, you can capture a lot of more problems earlier on before you even check in the code that would otherwise lead to, you know, a failing, uh, a failing load test or any disaster in, in a production environment. So I understand the develop I understand the developers. You know, I, I used to be a developer by heart, and I hated writing tests <laughs> because, it, because it, as you said, it kept me from from doing the cool stuff. But you soon realize that in the end you are just digging through a lot of old code and trying to figure out a problem that you have implemented weeks or months ago and if you would have had a test that would have told you right away before checking in the code you would have saved all the time in the end giving you more time for building new cool stuff. So some people have to fail first before they realize what they need to do. It's like babies, they need to you need to put your hand on the hot plate until you realize <laughs> it's a bad idea. I effectively, uh, my, my big thing I promote is to effectively change the culture. You leverage things like transparency. And so one of the things I promote a lot is uh, to effectively change the culture. If, you, if a team learns to put uh, the, most, the sore spots front and center in front of the entire team, like go ahead and put um, the health of a, a build after, you know, and, and how much code coverage you have. So if I were to put every day, everybody walks in and they look at their, their a particular screen or dashboard and shows, what's your unit test code coverage? And if it's sitting at 5%, and then after the build happens, you see you know X number of exceptions and logs and, and everything else, uh, people realize before it even goes into functional testing, it's not in the greatest of shape. And if people start putting their biggest pain points earlier on in the project, you know, process front and center, it becomes very transparent as the true health of those and the state of those builds before they even hit functional testing. So you know your functional testing is going to have to cover an amazingly amazing amount of function if the unit test coverage is not there. It's kind of like a layered onion, but you, if Every day, every somebody walks in, and all you ever saw were your source spots. You'd probably start addressing them pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some there's so a whole to it, right? Like if you if and while teaching yourself to enjoy failure is surprisingly good because it's going to fail. The choice is whether it fails in production or it fails in the development life cycle, right? Right. Well, and then also you can see progress. You know, I mean, that's the other, that's the flip side to it. So if you start increasing, if you see your team and you're like sitting at a code coverage level like 5%, and then all of a sudden you say, oh my God, look at, we just came in today and after like three weeks or whatever, we're up to like 35% code coverage. That's great. And we're seeing less 
it's errors now in the functional testing. Now let's see if we can get it up there higher, and then we see 50%. It becomes a momentum, you know, and I mean, this is how you evolve uh, you know, a delivery pipeline and a culture around it. Now here's actually I have one question that I have. Uh, I know Eric, you're typically asking the questions, but you talked about code coverage, mm -hmm. and there's always a big debate on is code coverage or test coverage mm -hmm. itself a great metric for looking at the build quality? So is it, what should be the goal? Is this is this a is this a good thing to say we need 80% test coverage, or is this not the only metric we want to look at? I think we are promoting. Different, different metrics, but not only that. Right? Well, it's layered again. So if we get the code coverage, then if you're covering enough of the code, now we can start measuring the runtime metrics. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly, code coverage is one thing, but uh, when you get into performance monitoring, if you're covering 80% uh, of the code, that means uh, that you're essentially hitting enough of the code areas that you can measure a lot more of what's going on. So uh, if you are monitoring it from a performance standpoint, we can see the number of database calls that are being made, because if you're covering 80% in unit, mm -hmm. then you're going to see you have a lot more visibility into a lot of what's going on inside of the application even before it hits functional testing. So therefore, if you miss some functional spots in functional testing, you know, you still have that layer of unit mm -hmm. test coverage. Mm -hmm. so. But what I like with what you said is, I mean, the, the code coverage is one health indicator, right. but then you add additional metrics like how often do we go to the database? How many log statements do we create? How many bytes do we transfer in these APIs that we're testing? And these, are ba these basically become your overall health Metrics for your build. Yeah. yeah. Together, they become a very fortified yeah. delivery. Yeah. yeah. And the thing, I guess, why we why we both mentioned the number of database queries because accessing the database is the number one problem we always see yes. in applications. So if I have a unit test that tests a new feature, and I can say this new feature is executing five SQL statements, but now with the code change, it's executing 50 SQL statements and still producing the same functional output then overall the quality of that build actually dropped because I need 10 times as many round trips to the database to do the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, and not only that, remember that as more you get unit test coverage, uh, those unit test coverages are also being run on the local builds as well. Yeah. So now, you know, unlike functional tests where they're deployed and they start running those functional tests, you can actually get a lot more visibility even at the local workstation prior checking in. So, yeah, so that means to be... So you can measure both the code coverage for the local yeah. as well as the runtime metrics yeah. after they ran. I think you, I mean, we talked about this earlier today. You, you mentioned the term hardening hardening your codes before you actually committed, right? We have pre-check-in so hardening. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's a big piece of, of the... And I, I love it because, you know, we get this idea that... You know, we're measuring, you measure by lines of code, and you hear that often. It's like, well, how many, when we talk about, you know, commits to open source projects, like, well, how many lines of code did they commit? Uh, does it really matter? Let's talk about what the net effect is. And, and internally, it's even more important, you know, just carving off more commits and measuring that as your success factor is not the right way to, it's not the right metric to chase, I don't think, right? Yeah, those are like static policy metrics versus runtime metrics. Yeah. yeah. So it's how does the? Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andy. It's also an, another metric because you just mentioned the, the number of check-ins. Uh, referring back to what uh, Adam Auerbach from Capital One said, he said we are not logging bugs; we fix them. 
So they say when they develop features within their sprints, they don't use a ticketing system like Jira to find a lot of bugs to make the test managers happy on how many bugs they found. They said we are developing and we are better spending the time on finding and fixing these problems right away when we find them instead of you know, creating yet another metric that doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Because if you find 50 bucks in the sprint, what does this tell you? No, nobody knows. <laughs> exactly. But if but if the, if the share if the shared accountability within the team, the tester role and the developer role say we are confident enough that will be produced here has good quality, then that's a much better metric than saying I found 50 bucks in the last sprint. So now the fun part becomes, you know, we know it's a cultural shift. We know that's a, that's obviously the, the greatest portion of it. But what about the toolkit? You know, maybe you guys want to talk about what's what's in your toolbox that lets you do this. You know, how do you measure database calls? How do you, you know, what's your sort of, what's your end-to-end deployment lifecycle toolkit you know, from code? You know, what do you, what do you build your code into? How do you deploy it? I'd love to hear it. Well, I guess the two of us, both Brad and I, we're obviously working for, I think it was mentioned before, a company called Dynatrace. We are an APM vendor, and uh, in our toolbox is Dynatrace, which actually allows exactly monitoring these metrics on your developer's workstation and uh, in your CI, in your staging environment, and in production. So uh, I think Dynatrace is obviously on the toolbox. And we're working with a lot of clients. I mean, Brad, I guess, more so now, with our large accounts, and they have different types of technology stacks. Oh, yeah. But, but I, I guess the, the key thing is you want to, we all understand the importance of looking at these metrics, quality metrics, application metrics, and the earlier we can capture them, the closer the feedback loop is. Like, if, if, I, can, if I can bring these metrics at the fingertips of a developer that sits in Eclipse, before they check in code, they just run a quick sanity check, and then Dynatrace tells them, well, your code change is just now exploding the number of database statements that Hibernate is executing, then we should prevent the developer from checking in code. So we do it there, we do it in CI, so when you run your unit test and your functional test in CI, we, we use, we, we capture these metrics. Uh, of course, I mean, we are very biased, coming from, from Dynatrace. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, um, there's other tools out there in the APM space, but there's other tracing and profiling tools that also can tell you a lot of these metrics. You can even go down to simple JMX metrics in Java in Java containers or performance counters in Windows environments that give you some of these metrics. The key is that I think people need to sit down and figure out which metrics do we need to look at, do we want to look at, because which metrics tell us how good and healthy our, our code is and our, and our deployment is. things like number of database queries. So if I make a code change, and instead of having five database queries being executed in the previous build, now it's 50 because I made a change in Hibernate, then I want to stop this build early on. But not only do I want to capture this on my local machine, which is important because that's the closest feedback loop that I, loop that I have. So if I sit in my Eclipse and I run my, my, my code changes through and I run the tests locally, and then I know I just made a change that is not good, 
then I fix it before I actually commit it. So we capture this on the local machine in the CI. So when you execute all the tests in CI, we also look at how did they, the dynamic behavior of the app change from build to build. But what's more important, or what's also very important, is not only to look at the code quality health throughout the pipeline, but once we deploy a feature in production, so for instance, Brad and I, we're developing this new cool feature that Charlene, our business analyst, told us to implement. So we implemented, but what we also do is we put metrics in to figure out, hey, is this feature used? Is it not used? By whom is it used? So when the whole thing is deployed into production and three months down the road, we figure out, guess what? Nobody is using this feature. <laughs> then we awesome. can go back to Charlene. Yeah, then we can go back to Charlene and say, Charlene, either you had a wrong idea or we didn't market it correctly. If you had the wrong idea, let's take this code out, not only the code, but also the tests, which means we're lowering the number of lines of code and tests we need to maintain. We're basically reducing technical debt. If we figure out the feature is used, but only by a certain ge a geographic or a certain number of users, I'd say only Android users, then we need to look at why is nobody using it on the iOS phone. So these are all the metrics that we need to build, and I think a lot of companies out there, I'm always referring to also Capital One, but those targets, they talked about this, building measures into the feature that we develop so we can monitor how these features are actually used out there in the production, so we can make smart decisions on whether we can take these features out or not, or we need to maintain it for the future. And if you think about a very old-fashioned app, Microsoft Word, as much as we all love it, but we all know there's probably 90% of the features that nobody really uses, but I guess Microsoft itself doesn't even know. Um, if That's they would right. know all of this, they could probably have taken out certain things and make it less complex and therefore reducing technical depth or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's a, a big thing that, you know, it's, I love the idea of, of you know, analytics driven, you know, feature utilization because we've, I've had this before, I worked in a company and, and we had built all of our processes around making sure this one particular feature set stayed online as part of the website. Everybody was always, it was like all hands on deck every time we'd have some update. And then we put analytics on it and we found out that in fact, nobody used that portion at all. And yet it was listed as a tier one service and it had all of this process wrapped around it. And we spent needless hours every month managing this feature that was untouched. And it, it, it's, it's so important for us to understand how it's being consumed. So the analytics approach is definitely much needed, I think, for a lot of orgs. Yeah, I mean, just, just to piggyback, I actually wrote on that in a, a, a blog series I wrote, um, and uh, I always refer to it as, you know, you win the battle, but you lose the war. Because <laughs> essentially, you did a great job on something that was relatively meaningless, but, you know, cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix something that makes you nothing. Um, so, yeah, for sure, it's, it's, and it really comes down to prioritization, right? Because the key to a successful sprint and a successful delivery is uh, deliver the absolute most value to the business. Uh, and in order to do that, it's it, the name of the game is prioritization. And uh, if you're monitoring things properly and you have the right tools to monitor those properly, um, you will totally optimize your prioritization process um, with, with the proper monitoring in place. And you've you've hit it on the head right there. You know, it's about delivering business agility <clears throat> and quality and 
you know, that's that's where it comes. You know, we we love the technology and we love to nerd out on the bits and bytes and, and how we get it there. But the, the end result is business satisfaction and that's, you know, capital win because they they're spending a lot of money maintaining this process. And if we don't do it effectively, then it's it's money left on the table with every every code commit. Right. So guys, uh, you know we're we're getting close to winding down. <clears throat> if you if you had to tell somebody to to get started, if they're a fresh developer or you know intermediate developer, they want to learn more about how to kind of make you know make TDD make uh, this you know sort of Dynatrace type of testing available to themselves, so they can dive in a little further. What are some good resources? Maybe even you know a book, website, anything you think. You know, uh, we'll start with you, Brett. You know, and feel free to plug your own site too, because it's I'll, I'll we'll put a link to that blog series you talked about as well. Uh, but tell us, you know, wh what are good places to go to learn about this? Uh, I think you'll see a lot of general. I mean, there are some books like Continuous Delivery, or you've seen the Phoenix Project. Um, uh, these are some great, uh, you know, books to actually look at. Uh, continuous delivery really helps with a lot of details uh, around it. Uh, but you also just a, a general searching on, uh, you know, certainly on our site, you can look at a lot of the DevOps blogs. Uh, get interested in a lot of the latest blogs. Join some of the groups. You'll see a lot of DevOps groups on side of, uh, LinkedIn. Um, great communities, great forums, a lot of discussions around those. Uh, developer.com, um, DevOps, uh, there's a lot of uh, DevOps uh, central sites that are out there. Uh, you know, I stay, I, I stay up and, and do a lot of reading. I actually write and, and uh, participated in some of the uh, interviews with several of the magazines and, and they just have, a, there are a lot of really great, great resources. Um, as far as getting started, uh, I'll let Andy talk about, because I know that's one of the, the things dear to his heart as far as what we do on uh, getting started with the APM side of the house within the DevOps group. Mm -hmm. So I think what I can recommend, and if you can post some links later on, that's great. Uh, we have, we empower especially developers and testers with the Dynatrace personal license. That means you can actually get Dynatrace for free for life to, before you check in code, do your sanity checks. When you test code, do the sanity checks. So get these app metrics. And the blog that I can recommend is it's called, I think, Shift Left Quality, how to bake application metrics into your into your pipeline. It's a, it's a link that I wanna I wanna give you later on. Perfect. Uh, this it basically explains how a developer and both the tester role can level up the work that they do. So that's a good start. I think we have our YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel where I do online performance clinics every other week where I show how I do performance analytics, how I bake performance and keep these metrics into the pipeline, so it's all public. Uh, additionally to what Brad said about the uh, the local communities, I love the meetups, so check out the meetup scene, DevOps Days, I think you mentioned that. And I think the best we can all do is just talk with people that have done it or that found their version of DevOps and either at these meetups, at these conferences or a lot of companies have their blogs, just as we have webinars, podcasts, webinars, like podcasts. You know, just learn, just learn what what did. And we, Brad and I, we did a webinar last year. Yep, several uh, actually. Several <laughs> actually, yeah. So, uh, so check this out. Where we talk with clients and basically bring best practice. Well, best practice is also a bad word, uh, but it's it, we, we we show how others are doing it. Yeah, you'll, yeah, and you'll like I mentioned the the blog I wrote is called The Art of DevOps. It has a lot of my thoughts, my high level thoughts on it. Uh, I think we actually published an ebook on that as mm -hmm. well. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, great. We'll make sure we add links into the the show notes, and that that's awesome. I love when you you just stopped yourself when you said best practices. Because I always we always joke to say that today's best practices are tomorrow's. What the hell were we thinking? Yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a bit of a catch twenty two when we we think best practices are so static and and it in a dynamic world it's it's tough for us to to think of what is quote unquote best, right? Yeah. And and everybody's different too, right? I mean, what's trending? Yeah, what's trending? <laughs> everybody's different. Every organization is different, and so you know, just because Facebook does it one way doesn't mean the whole world needs to do it the Facebook way. And uh, yeah, I heard a great. Uh, there was a, 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 a the Cloudcast uh, did a great session the other day <clears throat> with uh, Alex Polvey from CoreOS, and he talked about. You know the 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 Giphy, whatever it's Google's infrastructure for everyone else, and and they talked about you know does do people really need that? And it was a neat, honest approach to saying like, yeah, no, it's it's just crazy. You know, why are is everybody being told that they need to chase Google? It and you just don't. However, we can take some of those practices and and add them into our, our own you know development practice and our own infrastructure practice and and get some advantages there so it's kind of cool well guys yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's all sorry go ahead like, i said it's about leveraging experiences and it always reminds me of one of my favorite quotes which is uh you know man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an opinion so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this is great, guys. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing sharing stories and, and some great links that we're going to share out. Uh, I can officially notch it again. We're hitting a 100% success rate on people mentioning the Phoenix Project as a must-read in the podcast. Uh, and it's just one more way that I can finally get uh, – I'm going to get Gene Kim to come on and and speak to it himself. I want to get the the Phoenix Project crew, uh, Gene and and Kevin and and George, on to talk about, <clears throat> you know, how how is it that their book becomes the most mentioned book in in every podcast we listen to and 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 speak on. So there's there's something to be said about the what they put together. Yeah, I think every everybody can just relate to that story and to these poor guys in that company. That's the problem. <laughs> every, everything. Is- Everything is so real, and, and, and unfortunately, everything is so much common sense on what they do, but still, we lack on executing the common sense changes. Exactly. Yeah, cool. Okay, guys, well, let's, uh, I'll give you one last out. If you want to just sort of reintroduce uh, where we can find you online and uh, uh, so that we can continue the conversation if folks want to want to get a hold of you. So, uh, Andy, uh, what are the, what's the best spot to find you? Uh, either on Twitter at GrabnerAndy, which Andy with an I, but I guess you'll figure that out. Uh, blog.dinotrace.com, and that's true for both Brad and I. I think that's yeah. the best way for me. Yeah. Yeah, mine is uh, my Twitter is uh, at Brett underscore S O L A R C H or Brett Solark, and uh, my Twitter is Brett Hofer. Um, you'll find me in the Tampa Bay area. You got the right link. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks very much. And again, for folks that want to keep the conversation going, uh, feel free to add comments here into the show notes. If you find it, if you go to gcondemand.io, that will take you to the uh, main show page. You get a link to all the different uh, existing episodes that are out there uh, with links to subscribe in iTunes and also to find us on Stitcher. Uh, make sure you subscribe, and we'd love to hear, uh, you know, rate us, uh, drop a review in, tell us comments about the kind of stuff you want to hear. 
Uh, thanks again to Andy and to Brett for, uh, for all the work they've done here today and for all of you for listening. And uh, make sure you join us again next week here on the GC On Demand. Okay.